ask you, if you will, to once again to keep your Bibles open as we will walk through this passage together. We've been reading through, uh, studying through Philippians, uh, verse by verse, word by word, and we come to this really important part of Paul's letter to the church of his walk with the Lord and the desire of his heart. And so let's pause for just a moment again and ask God uh, to help us with, with our desires as we study this word together. Lord, as we just kind of steal our hearts for a few moments before we look again to your precious word, we've had the joy of declaring praise to you through song. We've had the joy of celebrating life and dedicating a, a, a home and a family to your name. We've had the awesome privilege of prayer. It has really been a blessing already. And now we come, Father, to your inerrant, infallible, inspired, living, active, powerful, life-changing, soul-saving, truth, gracious, mercy-filled word. And Father, we, uh, we long, God, for, as we sung earlier, for you to speak. We long, God, for you to speak to our hearts. We've kind of, we, we've put kind of the things together that your word says that we should do when we assemble. We, we should give, we, we should pray, we should sing, we should look to the word. So Father, as we do those things with, with humble hearts, desiring and seeking you, Father, we, we just ask God for you to speak. For you to plant that word in that very specific situation for which we are lacking today. There are hundreds and hundreds of needs represented in this room and you are sufficient for each and every one of them. Everything from the need of being raised from deadness and sin to the need of being able to take the next breath and everything in between. And you are sufficient for each and every one. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. Help me, God, today to preach this message in a way that, that nobody sees me. that we see Christ and we see his worth 
and we see his beauty and it compels us to love him and treasure him follow him with everything we've got speak O Lord it's in the powerful name of Christ we do pray amen so we're walking through Philippians together and the previous passage of scripture we looked at verses 1 through 7 Paul's point in those seven verses he was warning the church not to be taken in by false gospel by a false teaching in in particular the the false teaching of that day was that one must believe in Christ and one must be circumcised to be right with God you can't be right with God unless you do something there's something that is dependent upon you. And Paul is urging them then to reaffirm and be reassured in the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough. And Christ plus anything is a false gospel. So Paul says we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. If God is responsible for 99.9999% of my salvation and I'm responsible for what's left, I'm in trouble. It has to be Christ plus nothing. Our flesh simply will not do. Jesus brings everything to the table when it comes to our salvation. We bring nothing except our need for it. And so Paul is pressing this truth home and in Philippians chapter 3. And so he says, if anybody, if anybody can qualify to be saved and be right with God by the spiritual things that we do, it would be me. And Paul goes to list in those verses seven of his own spiritual qualifications. He said, man, if anybody can be right with God by what depends on us, I mean, I, I've got a pretty clear record of outstanding spiritual qualifications here. And he lists seven of them. But that's his point. His point was, I had all the spiritual qualifications. I had all the spiritual credentials, and I wasn't right with God. In fact, I was so far away from God, and in order to bring me to himself, he, Jesus appeared to me and blinded me and spoke to me. I was so far in the wrong direction. So Paul concludes this part of his argument in verse 7 with, whatever gain I had, whatever built me up, whatever I could do, whatever my record was, whatever credentials I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. The point is they didn't benefit me in getting me right with God. I count them as loss. So the point is just cling to Christ. Just cling to Christ. He's all you need. 
Now, in verse 8, where we pick up this morning, Paul slightly changes his, his message from arguing against a false gospel to now he's giving his own testimony now. He goes into his testimony of, of, of verifying of the sufficiency and worth of Christ. So after saying, hey, you got to put, you, it, there's no confidence in the flesh. Everything depends on Christ. Now he goes into saying how he has seen that by grace, realized in his own life. In other words, Paul is saying, I can testify to you of what I'm telling you. I'm not just preaching to you. I'm, I'm walking where I'm telling you to go. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. And I believe Paul's testimony reaches its climax here when, when in verse 10 he says, That I may know him. In other words, Paul is saying, that's what life now is all about. Ever since I met Christ and, and found out the true gospel and quit leaning on the false gospel, everything about life now is that I may know him. And this is beyond knowing of Christ in the sense of salvation. So Paul is not saying... I hope I can get saved some, at some point. No, what he's saying, th this is beyond the, 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 the sense of when, when we come to Christ by repenting of our sin and by trusting and embracing him as our Lord and Savior, we come to know the Lord in that saving sense and that reconciled to our creator sense. And, and the Lord knows us in that saving sense. But this is something more, isn't it? Paul is saying, now I'm living life that I may know him. So this is something even, even more precious, even further than that new birth experience. Paul is speaking here of, of a kind of sweet fellowship that he has with Christ, of a kind of intimate friendship. Of a, of a close communion, a, a, a togetherness, a, a walk with the Lord that he is experiencing and that he wants more of. Paul is saying, I, I don't want to know him just in the, in the new birth, new life, promise of heaven since, all that as well, but I want to know him in the depth of a personal relationship with him. He, he lives within me. I want to get to know the God who left the throne of heaven and died for me and rose again and now lives within me. I want to get to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to converse with him. I want to experience life with him. I want to confide in him, rest in him. I want to hear him. I want to learn from him. I want to get to know him. Who, who is this God of the universe who now lives within me? You know, it's said of married couples that after you live with someone for so long, you get to know each other on a deeper level, on, a, on another, in another sense, rather than just that romantic love sense, which is wonderful. But then you get to know each other on a, on a, on a, on a deeper level, on another sense, where then you get to see all the quirks, right, and all the, all the things that aggravate you 
But you get to know someone to a certain point that you can anticipate one another's actions. You, you, you know what they're going to do. You know, you know what their response is going to be. You're around someone enough and you get, a, you get the sense when something, something's not right. I don't know what I did, but I did something because something's not right. You get to a point that you can finish one another's sentences, right? You get to a point, you, you, you cannot see one another all day long and you walk into a room and you see their expression and you already know what's happened. You get to know someone. Some, some people say that after couples live together or married for so long and they're together for so long and through so much of life's experiences that they actually begin to look like one another. Summer is praying, God, do not let that happen. You know why that happens? Because you spend a lifetime together. You, you walk through life's ups and downs. You, you learn each other's ways. Did you know that we can grow even closer than that in a real way with the Savior who lives within us? Did you know there's never, there, there, there are times when, when Summer and I are not in the same location. Right now she's uh, on her way to Charleston to visit with Talitha. But you know I never go anywhere without Jesus. He's with me all the time. But I don't think I know him like I should know him if he's with me all the time. I think that's what Paul's saying. We can know our Savior in a personal, intimate, joyful, living relationship. So I'm praying through this that, that Paul's seems to be his life ambition, right? That I may know him. That's why I live the way I do. That's why I'm doing what I do. That's why I say what I say. That's why I tell you what I tell you, that I may know him. I pray that that would be our ambition. That, that we could leave this morning saying, each of us saying in our hearts, but then saying together that I may know him. That, that the rest of this life, whatever it might be, it might be one more day, it might be 10 more years, it might be 50 more years, whatever this life may be, that I may know him will be my goal. That's what Paul is saying. So let's talk about that for a few minutes together this morning. The first, of, the first we see here in, in verse 8 is the worth of knowing him. Why is this Paul's ambition? Why is this Paul's goal? We need to see the worth of knowing Christ in that intimate, personal, living relationship way. Paul says, remember what he said earlier, we went over in verses 1 through 7. I want to illustrate this with some visuals. And these are shocking visuals. Spiritual credentials. Paul says, I have a list of spiritual credentials. These are the things that I've done right spiritually. These are the things that in man's eyes should make me qualified to be 
with God. And then he says, though, in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything. So not only have I counted this loss for the sake of Christ, but he's got another list, and it's the everything else list. The everything else list. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost, not just my spiritual credentials, but everything. So what does he mean? What's on that list? We looked last week, what's on the spiritual credentials list? It's, It's the good deeds. It's the church stuff. It's the religious stuff that often because if we have a pile of those behind our name, that can deceive us into into us thinking we're right with God because we got this spiritual credentials list. But there's another list, Paul says, that gets in the way sometimes too. It's everything else. So what are some other things that might would deceive us into thinking we don't really need God, that that we're we're okay, we've got our own record. It could be things like riches. It it could be things like possessions. It it could be things like achievements, accolades, philanthropy, notoriety, the acceptance and applause of others. Boy, when everybody gives you an attaboy, girl, when everybody's uh, uh, hitting like and and love, when, when everybody's applauding everything you say and do, well, you get a sense that you're good, you're perfect, you're, you're, you're quite all right. You, there's nothing that you need other than that applause. It might be your, your, the pursuits that you're on in life, the things you're pursuing, the things you're chasing in life. It might be your status. It might just be your knowledge. It just might just be you know a lot of stuff. You're very intelligent. You've... You teach others. Others rely on you. Others come to you. Others seek help from you. You are are very needed by other people, so therefore you don't need anything. People need you. Everything that would seek to tell me that I don't need Christ, what I have and what I do and what I achieve is enough. Paul says, I've got my two lists. On one side. Now on the other side, there's Christ. I got my two lists, and here's Christ. Just Christ. There's nothing else on the list. Only Christ. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Just Christ. Now there are three options before us now of what we can do with these two compartments here. We can cling to our spiritual credentials and everything else and forget Christ. Set him aside. Because we've already got everything we need to be right with God and we've already achieved, a, the, the, we, we've got what the world can give, we've got what we can do in life. We're on our way. And self will tell you and the world will tell you and the enemy will tell you, you don't need Christ. Look at who you are. Look at what you've done. You don't need Christ. Or there's another option. You can blend the two. You can say, give me just 
let me squeeze just enough of Jesus in my list. Let me get just a little Jesus. Just enough of Jesus to ease that conscience of mine because I was created in the image of God. Just give me a little Jesus enough that, you know, every once in a while we'll be at church. Every once in a while I'll pray. Just give me a little bit of Jesus, but this is what I'm doing. But give me enough of Jesus for some fire insurance. And everybody will tell you that too. And the religious crowd will say, just a little Jesus. Just join the church. Just get baptized. Just pray a prayer. And then do with Jesus what you want to. Go get it. Prove and fun. Don't worry about Jesus anymore. You've already walked the aisle. You've already prayed the prayer. Just a little Jesus. You can blend the two. But there's a third option. It's a radical option. It's one in which the world will say, you are a fool. It's one in which your friends will say, you are crazy. It's one in which your family will say, you've lost your mind. The third option is, he's all I need. He's all I want. He is sufficient, not only for eternal salvation, but for life here and now. It's Christ. It's who he is. It's what he's done. It's who he is in me. He's all I need. I can take or leave the other stuff. I'm not saying I don't do any, but when I do the other stuff, I do it for Christ, through Christ, by Christ. It's all about him. Now, who tells us that? The world doesn't tell us that. Self doesn't tell us that. The religious crowd doesn't. Christ tells us this. Christ tells us this. Christ says, get rid of everything that stands between me and you. Get rid of it. Follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. Christ says, if you hunger, I'm the bread of life. Christ says, if you're thirsty, I'm the fountain of living water. Christ says, if you seek God, I'm the shepherd. Christ says, if you long for meaning and hope, I am the resurrection and the life. Christ says, if you would enter heaven, I am the door. If you yearn to find the answer to life's greatest questions, if you long to be reconciled to God, if you can't find your way, Christ says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Christ says, come. Lay everything else down and come. He, he stood by the shore to the fishermen and said, drop your nets and come. 
He calls out to every one of us today, if you are heavy laden and tired, come. Lay everything else down. Come, I will give you rest. So Paul says, when you compare the two, these two lists and Christ, there's no comparison. Knowing Christ, Paul says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of, here it is, the surpassing worth. The surpassing worth. Add it all up, list it all down. Christ said, Paul says, Christ is more. The surpassing worth. So Paul says, I take my two lists, and what do he say? Well, he says this I count them as lost. And then he goes farther and says, I count them as rubbish. Trash. That's what he said. He said that because what he's found in Christ is so much greater, tastes so much better, is so much more glorious that everything else, even the good things, even the best things in this life, look like they mean nothing when you stand them beside Christ. So what makes Christ of surpassing worth? That's where we go in verse 9. Paul says... Coming from verse 8, for his, for, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what is it about Christ that makes everything else look like trash? He says in verse 9, he's talking about the faith in him. The faith in him. What makes Christ of surpassing worth is that Christ makes us right with God. Nothing else will suffice. Only Christ makes us right with God. That's, what, that's where Paul is getting at in verse 9. May be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. To be righteous before God means to be right with God. To have right standing with God. Now to be right with God, you must be found in Christ. You must be found in his son. That's why verse 9 starts out. He's of surpassing worth. Because if I'm found in him, I'm right with God. I'm righteous before God. So to be found in Christ, though, you have to believe in Christ. That that, that depends on faith, Paul says. It's the righteousness that comes from God. You, You must be found in Christ by having faith in Christ. Believing in Christ, that is, trusting in Christ, embracing Christ, loving Christ, treasuring Christ. That's what it means to have faith in him. Relying on him for your salvation and every step of your life. Paul says that's the righteousness of God that depends on faith. 
that righteousness, that right standing with God does not come from me. That's Paul's point. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law because that's not going to get me anywhere. That's just my spiritual credentials. It's not a righteousness that comes from me. I don't, I don't get a right standing with God from, from within me. Remember, I put no confidence in the flesh. But this righteousness comes from God, he says. This is a righteousness that is granted to us, counted to us, credited to us. It comes from God. When we trust in Christ, we get a righteousness that we don't have. It's not ours. It's not mine. I'm right with God based on someone else's record. His. And that's why when I believe in him and and when I'm found in him, then I have right standing with God because I have his record, not mine. Paul says, I can't be found in him just having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. If that's all I have and I'm not in Christ, then I'm not righteous before God. I'm not right with God. Let me illustrate it this way. If when I stand before God, all I have are my lists. So let's pull out these lists again. I made two because I tore up my first copies. Let's pull out these lists again. Spiritual credentials and everything else. When I breathe my last on this earth... And my eyes wake up and I'm standing before the judge of the living and the dead, the holy God of the universe. And all I have are my two lists. Here, God, here are the good things I did at church. Here, God, here's all that I achieved in the world. If all I have are my two lists, they won't suffice. And here's why. Because I actually have another list. I have this list. My sin. And it goes with me everywhere I go. You got one too. It's taped on your back right now. It's your sin, every one you committed. Every thought, every motive, every deed, every word, every backbite, every gossip, every slander, every prideful move, every selfish ambition, every lustful thought, every greedful, greedy act, every hateful work. I got that too. When I stand before God. Now here's the problem. Here's why Paul says. These two lists. They don't mean nothing. You know why he says that? Because this one. Counsels them out. My problem is really not. That I've done some good things at church. My problem is not that I've had some worldly success. My 
My problem is that I rebelled against my creator every single day of my life. And these two lists don't do anything with this one. That's rubbish. How am I going to get rid of this one? Because sin can't stand in the presence of God. I trust in him. You know what he does? He takes my list. And it's hidden. It's not there anymore. Paul says that. You can't beat that. What Christ actually does is he takes this list. And he gives me his record. He gives me his record. And now I'm found in him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. What sin? My sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, there's that language, Paul says, may be found in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. We, We might have a right standing with God. By who? By what I did? No, by what he's done and given to me. The miracle of all this is I don't deserve it. Why? Because all I had was sin. The mercy of God is unbelievable. The grace of God toward you is overwhelming. The faith in him. Only the righteousness of Christ makes me right, makes me righteous before God. And that's why he is of surpassing worth. Now let's hit the final point together. The last two verses, the life with him. The life with him in verses 10 and 11. And so, so that, th- this is where Paul then says that I may know him. The, the one that's done all of this for me. He did all this for me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't. It, he just did it for me. So so that one that has done all of this for me and now lives within me, I want to know him. I want to get to know him. I want to have fellowship with someone that can do that, someone that that acts like a God that lives like that, does that, is that. I want to know him. And he says, this is how I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. 
The power of his resurrection. What is the power of his resurrection? Well, we can visualize it like this. I mean, we know it's unlike any other power on this earth, the power of his resurrection. But visualize it like this. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, in order for Lazarus to be raised from the dead, it required Jesus to be on the outside of his tomb and to call him forth. And he said, Lazarus, come on out. And he came. But he came because Jesus was there calling him out. There's a, look, there's a complete difference at Jesus' resurrection. It requires no one standing outside of his tomb. It requires no one calling him out. He's God. At the right time, at the right moment, his lifeless body renewed in a glorified existence, and he, God, got up. God raised him. That's the resurrection that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks together. That's the power of his resurrection. It comes from within. It's who he is. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection because he lives within me. So how do we do that as believers? We do it in three ways. Number one, we do it first of all when God raises us to new life from being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Did you know you were dead before Jesus? You were absolutely spiritually blind and dead. There was no movement from you whatsoever. You were spiritually laying in a casket, not doing anything, not making any movement towards God. And the Holy Spirit quickened your soul, transplanted your heart, and you believed and repented and loved Jesus with everything you got. What's that? Resurrection. <laughs> I mean, it seemed like, don't you remember when you first became a Christian that it seemed like everything was new? I mean, it looked, the, the world looked different, people looked different, things sounded different, the Bible was different, church was different, preaching was different, music was different, language was different. Everything, I mean, it was almost like you had been, I don't know, born again. <laughs> it, it seemed like everything was brand new. That's the power of his resurrection. That's the first way we know this power. But the second way, and this is the way I think Paul is is stressing it here. We know the power of his resurrection in this life as we walk day by day. We know the power of his resurrection when God sustains us and carries us through every trial, through every fire, through every hardship, through every obstacle, through every testing of our faith by his power. By his power. The power of his resurrection. Paul says, I want to know that because... Boy, my flesh is weak. My mind is often filled and foggy. My steps are often futile. My prayers are often stunted. I want to know the power of his resurrection. There's a God that lives within me that is life itself. And I want to know the power of his resurrection in this trial, in this hardship, 
in this crisis, in this tragedy, in this struggle, in the weight of this sin, in the burden of this life. I want to know the power of his resurrection. The almighty God lives within me. And third, we know the power of his resurrection when on that last day there comes a shout from heaven and our lifeless bodies are filled with new life and we rise. God will raise us. I want to remind you today that the power, here's what what I think we need to, to reconcile in our minds today. I don't think, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer, I don't think you have any, you don't have any qualms with what I'm getting ready to say. And that is, when Jesus returns, if you and I have already passed away, when Jesus returns, there'll be a shout from heaven, we will be glorified and we will be raised to meet him in the air. I don't think any of you say, well, I don't know. I think you all agree with that. Listen to me. The same power that's going to bring you forth on the last day lives in you now. You don't have to be joyless. You don't have to be defeated. You don't have to hate yourself. You don't have to worry or fear. You don't have to walk around dragging that weight. He lives in you now. That's why Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know him. And then there's another thing, quickly. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Boy, we need that, don't we? Here's something you might say, well, I don't need this next one. But it comes with the territory. Paul says, the way I can really get to know Jesus is I got to know his power because I haven't really fully comprehended it yet. I I don't live on the level where I need to be living with the God of the universe living inside me. So I, I need to know him. I need to know the power of his resurrection. But then Paul says, if, I, if you want to really know him, if you want to really get down in the nitty-gritty where Jesus lived and what he's like and where his heart is and how he saved you, then I want to know him by sharing in his suffering. Because that's what he came to do. That's who he is for me. How did he take all that from me a while ago? (laughs) How did he do that? He suffered in my place. Paul says, I want to share his sufferings. When we suffer for the gospel, when we suffer for the sake of our testimony in Christ, when we suffer for being followers of Christ, whether that comes from family or friend or vocation or life or culture or setting or even church, when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, 
we become like him because that's what he did. We become like him. We, we take on his character. We, we take on his heart when, when we anticipate and welcome suffering. You know the illustration I gave a while ago about married couples. After they're together for so long, they, they begin to look like one another. Well, when we suffer for Christ, we begin to look like him. And after all, isn't that what Jesus said? Listen to me, church. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you want to come after me, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. And Paul says that's how we really get to know him in his heart when we suffer with him. And so in verse 11... Paul says, that by any means possible. So what he's saying is, whatever I may face in this life on account of my faith in Christ is going to be worth it. Because my sufferings for Christ attest, my sufferings for Christ identify me with, my sufferings for Christ confirm that I'm found in him. Because I wouldn't be suffering for the gospel if I were not in him. So that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words... Sufferings identify, verify, confirm, illustrate that I'm with Jesus. I'm on my way to the resurrection. And what's that going to be like? Quickly, drop with me down to verses 20 and 21, and then we're going to close. What is the resurrection from the dead? And what is the power of his resurrection? And what is the worth of of my suffering in his name that I may be accounted for that resurrection? Same chapter, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, here it is, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If if we'll just dwell on those two verses for a little bit, it won't be long till we see Christ as surpassing worth. He is worth everything. Everything I gained and everything I suffer is worth it. It's worth it. If on that last day, I'm like him and with him. Let's pray. Father, would you just work in our hearts where we need work? Maybe today we need to be resurrected. We need to be brought to life. We need to know that first step of the power of your resurrection. Maybe today, Father, we, we're, we're struggling. We're, we're tired. We're weary as believers. We're distracted. We're, we're cluttered with everything else. We've got our two lists, and we're working feverishly 
on those two lists and with no regard to Christ. Maybe there's something in our life as believers where we need that demonstration of the power of your resurrection. Father, would, would you do something in our hearts today that's not usual? Would you do something in my heart today that's not normal? Would, would you do something, Father, that in our hearts and in our families and in our church that would have to be credited to you? Oh, we long for it. We really do, Lord. Come have your way in our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.